Well, good morning. Some precious music to sing this morning, both from the scripture reading as well as some of the songs. It really prepares us well for our text this morning. You know, there are some people who like to hurt others. We try to lock them up in prison. But for most of us, we don't wake up in the morning with the desire to go out and hurt our brother or our sister, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. And yet, I would guess that rarely a day goes by that we do not hurt others. That we don't hurt one of these persons. Now, maybe you don't hurt them physically, although accidents happen. In fact, I would say that more often than not, you don't hurt them physically. But there are other ways of hurting persons, and the scars left by those other ways are sometimes deeper and longer lasting than any physical scar. And so the question I have for you this morning, this question that our text really demands of us this morning, is this. What are you doing to avoid hurting others? How are you actively working to avoid causing emotional, spiritual, or physical harm to others? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you claim to be his disciple, then this is your second greatest priority every single day. The first we looked at a few weeks ago is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And when you do this, when you love God this way, you want to obey, you want to try to obey, you work to obey the second greatest commandment, which as we're reminded from James, as we even sung about, is to love your neighbor as yourself. We join Jesus this morning in that final week before the crucifixion, standing in Jerusalem, having silenced the religious leaders. He now turns his attention to the disciples and the crowds who have gathered. And he begins to expound a little bit further upon his reference in our Bible just a few verses earlier, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a few hours earlier, and begins to teach on the second greatest commandment, loving others as you love yourself. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Read along with me, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself 
will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate this important and great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, I pray that you would help us to see it from the perspective that you have, the perspective you give us through Jesus' words here. Help us to, as James says, become doers of your word, not merely hearers. That as we think about this, we understand the importance of it and we eagerly long to put it into practice. But, Father, let it be done because of that great love that we've sang about this morning. That love that since Christ, the only begotten, to die on the cross for our sins, would our response to that love that has been showed to us, to would our response of love result in deeds and words that glorify you, that bring you honor, that bring you praise, that enlarge your kingdom? Pray these things in your name. Amen. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, Jesus provides what he calls the second greatest commandment. It was in answer to that one Pharisee who was a little bit gentler than the others, who came to him with the question of what is the greatest commandment. And Jesus answered, what is the greatest commandment? And then for free, he threw in the second greatest commandment. And we noted a few weeks ago that this is not an instruction to love yourself. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean first focus on loving yourself. We do that well. We do that too well. This is a command to focus more on others, less on ourselves. That becomes abundantly clear by verse 11, verses 11 and 12. So what does it look like to love our neighbor? Well, first, as we get started, we really need to define who is our neighbor. Does it mean the same thing to Jesus as it does to us today? Is it just the person who lives next door or perhaps across the street? Well, the term means one who is close, one with whom, with whom you come in close proximity. It really refers to any fellow human that is near to you. It's any person you come across or interact with in your daily life. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor, what story did he tell in Luke 10? The story of the Good Samaritan. He took two enemies, a Jew and a Samaritan, and showed that a Samaritan, which would have shocked the Jewish audience, can become the neighbor of a Jew. And so we begin to see what a neighbor is. It's anyone with whom you come into contact. And so the follow-up question is this. How do you love the people you come across? What does that look like? Obviously, circumstances are going to dictate some of that. You might answer, well, maybe I could help make sure they don't go hungry. Or, and that would certainly be one way you could love your neighbor. You might answer, I, I need to share the gospel with them. That, that, too, is a way to love your neighbor, absolutely. Someone else might say, care for them in times of emergency or need, such as a natural disaster or violence, like the story of the Good Samaritan, or an accident or any such thing. We could probably come up with a number of ideas, just as many as there are circumstances in this life. But it's interesting, that's not where Jesus started. It's not that he disregards these things. No, they're important to him. He told the story of the Good Samaritan. He starts somewhere else. And I want us to look at how Jesus unpacks the second greatest commandment in showing us how we love our neighbor here in Matthew 23. Having scared the religious leaders into silence, there at the end of 
chapter 22, Jesus turns to the rest of the crowd and to his disciples who are there in the crowd. And he does it because he wants to teach them an important lesson. He wants to lay a foundation for loving their neighbor. There's a context here, the context of being in Jerusalem, the center of religious worship. In some ways, this is particularly apropos for those in the church. And Jesus starts by giving us several negative examples from the religious leaders. This is what it doesn't look like to love your neighbor. This is what it looks like to hate your neighbor. And then he reminds us once again that greatness in the kingdom of God comes through serving others and considering others as more important than ourselves. And I would say in these 12 verses, there are at least five. You could probably stretch it out even further. But there are at least five examples Jesus provides as a starting place for how you love your neighbor. This is not exhaustive, but it is a starting place in the context of Jerusalem and a religious setting. The very first way we find is there in verses 2 through 3, and it's you avoid hurting your neighbor, you love your neighbor by studying the Old Testament. And you're probably looking right back down to your Bible and saying, that's not what it says. I don't see anything here about studying the Old Testament to love my neighbor in verses 2 through 3. Well, let's unpack those verses just a little bit, and I think you'll end up where I am. There's several things going on in these verses. It's a little confusing at first reading. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Well, let's go ahead and unpack that first. That's probably our easiest answer. Um, it, it may have been a literal chair or place of seating, although that's unlikely. There's some evidence after Jesus' life that there was such a place where they would sit. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think it's a little less literal, a little more figurative. It's a... An expression, it speaks of those who have placed themselves as Moses' legal successors in possessing his authority. The chair of Moses is the place of authority in the Jewish religious setting. Now, whether it was a literal chair or a figurative expression, that purpose is going to be the same. It's the place of authority. It's the place from which one speaks and proclaims the law of God and claims to speak for God. And from there we read... From there, from that place of authority, they would read the law of God and they would give their interpretation. I think we get a great picture of this. If you want to turn there, you can, to Nehemiah chapter 8. This is a good example of what was going on. If you turn in Nehemiah, to Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning of verse 4, you read that Ezra, the scribe, and the other religious leaders of the people... They stood on a wooden podium made for the purpose of proclaiming God's law. That's why we use wood and not plexiglass. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. In verse 5, he opens the scroll in the sight of all the people. He opens the Bible. And he was standing there above all the people with the other religious leaders there. And he and the other leaders blessed the Lord. The people began blessing the Lord. Then down in verses 7 and 8, we read that these leaders, beginning with Ezra, took turns reading from the scroll, reading from the book, from the law of God, explaining to give the sense so that they understood, that is, the people understood the reading. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to, this practice that was going on where they would seat themselves, and they would call it the chair of Moses, the place of authority, those who had assumed the role and the authority of Moses, this lineage, if you will, of authority. 
And they would read aloud the scriptures, and then they would give their explanation and seek to apply it. Now, if you notice back in Matthew 23, down in verse 3 is where it starts to get a little bit confusing. Okay, we can someone understand this chair of Moses. We don't have a chair of Moses, but okay, it's a place of authority. They're speaking from authority. They begin by reading the book of the law, and then they give their explanation. And we see, therefore, as they're seating in this chair, all that they tell you, do and observe. Uh, There's the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, if you've been with us, really, for even one week of Matthew, what do you know about the Pharisees and the scribes? Should you do what they tell you to do? No. You're wondering, what is going on here? Why is he telling us to do what the Pharisees and the scribes say to do? I think we need to slow down a bit because it does get confusing, at least at first. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying you need to follow the teaching of the religious leaders. But the problem, like we just observed, is that it runs contrary to every other interaction Jesus has with these religious leaders where he says, don't follow their teaching, don't do what they say, don't do what they do. They, they harass the people. In fact, they are blind guides. They're blinding people from the kingdom of God. So how do we make sense of this? Why would he be instructing the crowds and the disciples to now do what they say? Well, notice in verse 3 that twice Jesus uses the term say or tell, or in some of your translations it may say preach there at the end of verse 3. First, do what they say to you, that is, do and obey. And I would say that the say here, what, they're, what he's describing is exactly what Nehemiah describes. The say, the telling that they are first doing is they're reading the Old Testament. They're reading the law of God. From the chair of Moses, the first thing they would do would be read the law of God. And so they say it and they tell it. Well, if that's the case, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would say, well, do that, obey that, follow that teaching. There's nothing wrong with the Old Testament. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then the end of verse 3, again, uses that same term. It's from the Greek lego to say or to speak. Some of your translations say preach. It says, they preach these things, they say these things, but they do not do them. Well, again, now it makes a little more sense. If we're talking about what the law of God is and what is found in the Old Testament, well, that aligns very well with Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and scribes and all the religious leaders because he has told us over and over and over again that they do not follow the teaching of Moses. They do not follow the instructions of Scripture. They do not obey the very things they speak, the very things they read from the Old Testament. I think this understanding is affirmed by the center of this verse where Jesus says, do not do according to their deeds. And I think this is where we run awry in this verse sometimes in trying to understand it. Part of the problem in interpreting it is that we forget that works doesn't just mean actions, it also means words. How many times have we seen that throughout our study of Matthew? How many times do you find that throughout your study of Scripture? That our works, our deeds, involve not only what we do, but what we say. In fact, James makes a big deal about this, right? If you can bridle the what, you can control the rest of your body in every action. Bridle your tongue, your words. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has shown that our deeds or works include both what we do and what we say. So much so 
that mean and cruel words are equated with killing other people. And he got that from Leviticus 19, where it says that to slander another physically endangers that person in Leviticus 19.6. So what were the words of the religious leaders there in the middle? They were twisting Scripture. They were creating explanations that were overbearing. They saddled the person's with over 613 additional laws based on the Old Testament. This was their works. These were their deeds, both what they did and what they said. They were starting, rightly, just as Ezra and the rest of those leaders of his day did and had done. They were reading and speaking the Old Testament. That's what Jesus first alludes to. But then they were twisting its meaning. Those are the works. Instead of giving explanation and understanding of what God intended, they taught and practiced a different message. This, again, is why it's so important to carefully read and study Scripture. To ensure that everyone who teaches, that you listen to who is teaching, does it well and accurately and carefully. Don't take what I say just for face value, just because I say it. Study Scripture. Study it for yourself. Make sure that it aligns with Scripture. Do it eagerly and excitedly like the Bereans did, but do it carefully. And Jesus affirms this. If you want to love your neighbor, study, practice the Old Testament. That's what he says there. Follow the example of Ezra, who in Ezra 7.10 set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Just make sure you're following God's teaching and not man's. That's what you don't follow. You don't follow the works. You don't follow the words of these false religious leaders. Because they're reading Scripture, but they're not doing it. The Old Testament sometimes gets a bad rap, but it is full of calls for loving neighbor. In fact, the Old and New Testament provide the only right example of social justice. Justice that is according to God's standard, that looks after the orphan, the widow, and the needy. But justice stops being justice when it's based on any standard other than God's. It stops being justice when it's based on the ever-changing, self-serving standards of individuals, politicians, or special interest groups. Those will always fail. They will always alienate, and they will ultimately provide injustice. Micah 6.8, you know it. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is loving your neighbor. And it leads to the second way we avoid hurting our neighbors. And it comes from shunning legalism. Look in verse 4. Legalism is one of the surest ways to hate and hurt your neighbor. Verse 4 notes that the religious leaders, they tie heavy burdens and they lay them on people's shoulders. They give the example of the people trying to carry the weight of a pack mule or donkey. They put them on them so heavy they can barely stand, they can barely walk all the while standing by and just watching, not willing to even lift a finger to help. They do nothing to lighten the load. They stand by and watch as people crumble under the weight of their teaching and their demands. They spiritually abuse the people. They scare and shame the people into obedience. Legalism, just so we're all using the same definition, is an emphasis on my ability to earn God's favor. 
It adds something to the mercy and the grace of God. We might say it adds to the message of the cross, as if there's something plus. In the case of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, it was a long list of things that must be done to guarantee and keep God's favor. We see a similar emphasis on man's responsibility to earn and keep salvation in the Roman Catholic Church. But legalism is alive and well in evangelical churches today. Whether it's works that are required for salvation, or if it's a perversion of sanctification, where I may start out relying on Christ's work and trusting in Him, but before long I start acting and thinking, it's up to me. I've got to now continue earning God's favor, continue making sure that I'm in good standing by working extra hard, that I can do this, that I can somehow earn more of God's favor if I will just work harder. It puts the emphasis in the wrong place so that I end up disobeying God. I become more worried about keeping small little rules and forget the reason why I'm even doing it in the first place. And I make rules more important than people. Now we need to be careful because the antidote or the solution to legalism is not to avoid any instruction on obedience and to only teach the grace and the love of God. In fact, when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he intensified the Old Testament law. He heightened the standard. You have heard it said, but I say to you. It's not just that you commit adultery, you look at a woman lustfully. He called for a more dedicated and serious study and obedience of Scripture, not less. But what we need to do is remind one another what it means to live in light of the grace and love of God and Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us. Because when we constantly remind ourselves of that, and we put our attention there, not on this list of rules, again, it's good to know what the Scripture calls for, but rather than focusing on the rules, but focusing on the love of God, the work of Christ on the cross, when we do that, it puts our focus in the right place. And now we want to, out of a love, I've used this example before, so forgive me for if you remember it. You can laugh along and just make me feel better. But it's like with Elise. If, you know, it's one thing for me to bring her some flowers and say, hey, I did this because I needed to. It's a very different thing to say, I love you, and I wanted to do this for you. Right? There's a difference there. There's a difference in motivation. I'm motivated out of a love, not out of a duty. Well, how do you do that? You spend time with the person. You remind yourself of why you love them. And that's what we need to do with Christ. That's why we study Scripture. It's not so that we can create a longer list of rules. It's so that we can grow in our love for God and want to do everything we can beyond all the rules that we can find. We should teach what good works look like that are pleasing to the Lord, but we must always do it in light of the mercy and the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ. And that has to be our motivation. Otherwise, we will hurt our neighbor. We will not love them. We will burden them. Well, there's a third way to love our neighbor. It's in verses 5 through 7. It's by serving in secret. In verses 5 through 7, we see how the religious leaders do everything to be noticed by others. They have fish bumper stickers on their donkeys. They have what would Jesus do bracelets on their wrists. 
Okay, it doesn't say that. But they wear phylacteries. Well, what's a phylactery? I'm glad you asked. It's a small box, or it was supposed to be a small box, maybe half an inch by three quarters of an inch, really small. They would write just a few words of the law in it. And it was to be a reminder, because we're forgetful people, aren't we? It's good to have reminders. And so they would have these reminders of, ah, this is why I'm doing, this is why I'm going about my day. It's because I love the Lord, because he's been so gracious to me, he has been so good to me. That's what they were supposed to be reminding themselves of, is how good and how gracious and how kind God had been to them and to motivate them in their daily life. That's why they would wear these. That's why they were supposed to wear these. But by this time, they had enlarged them. Kind of picture a big wooden block on people's foreheads as they're walking around. They would wear it on their, their left arm. So if it gets really big, they've got this muscular left arm and this weak right arm. They're carrying these things around as big as they possibly can to show off and draw attention that, look, I love the Lord. But really, what are they doing? They're drawing attention to themselves. They're not drawing attention to God. They're not pointing to Him. The tassels, similarly, were to be white and blue, according to Exodus and Deuteronomy. And again, they were, they were there as you walked around, as you felt them brushing up against you, just constant reminders of God's grace and His mercy. In fact, in the context of the Old Testament, when it was given, in that wilderness generation, I don't know if you remember, but neither their clothing nor the foot of their sandal wore out in those 40 years because of the grace and the mercy and the love of God. It was just constant reminders of, he's provided for me, he's caring for me, he loves me, and it motivates me to love him and obey him and to follow him. But for these religious leaders, it was all about being noticed, not serving in secret, They had turned these ways of reminding themselves about the love of God into a way of making people think more of them, to draw attention to themselves away from God. What is that called? Well, the term is idolatry. They're stealing glory from God and putting it on themselves. They were making themselves idols for people. You have to wonder at what point it just looked ridiculous. It also says they love the places of honor at the banquets. They want to sit as close as they can to the head of the table. They want to be in the know. They want to be with the influential people. So they fight over it. They jostle for these positions. They're obsessed with what others think of them and how important others think they are. They want to know how how close could I be seated to the important people. It's created a competition. Again, it draws attention away from God to, am I better Do people think more highly of me than they do of Joe sitting next to me? It distracted people from God. If you want to hurt your neighbor, do everything you can to make them pay attention to you instead of God. Do everything you can to make them think highly of you instead of God. Draw attention to yourself and how great you are instead of how God has worked through you. And bless you. Make them think you're amazing. Try to get them to praise you, to trust you, to rely upon you instead of God. That's what these religious leaders did. It's really what cult leaders do. They try to make people completely dependent upon them. By contrast, Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount that the Father who sees in secret will reward. 
This text shows us that it is a serious sin to be offended that someone does not pay you the quote-unquote proper respect. We should serve in a way that is only concerned about what God thinks. Not what others think, not what others say, but what God thinks. Fourthly, we love our neighbors by avoiding attention, or we might say losing the label. Verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, it contrasts the religious leaders who love special titles and being called rabbi with how a disciple of Jesus should act. The disciple of Jesus should never be concerned with labels. Why? Because there's only one head teacher, only one father, and only one leader. And guess what? It's not me. It's not any other leader of this church. It's not the leader of any other church. Certainly not the Pope. No, the one teacher is the Spirit. The one Father is God. The one leader is Christ. Just in case you wonder where I got the idea of the teacher being Christ and why I think all three are mentioned here, all you have to do is turn over to John 16. We're reminded that he sent the Spirit as our teacher. 1 John 2, the Spirit is our teacher, the one who guides us into all truth. I think this is one of those beautiful pictures of the Trinity. All the while alluding to Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, the Lord your God is one. And so he repeats one, one, one over and over to show us the Trinity, the three in one. Now you might be asking, I thought the Bible had titles for leaders. Doesn't it call some persons elders, some deacons, some overseers, some shepherds or under shepherds? What about deacons? That's true. To a certain extent, there's a little bit of hyperbole here, for instance, for emphasis. Jesus has done that before. He did that in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's to make the point that every human leader of God's people is simply an assistant or a servant. But beware the church leader who demands a title or demands that you call them pastor, elder, doctor, or some other title. Certainly, we want to be respectful to one another, and there's nothing inherently sinful about a title that exists. But from this passage, it does not seem a stretch to say that every use of an honorific title among the disciples of Jesus carries with it the temptation to sin, the opportunity for pride to take hold. So you must be alert and careful. We must handle titles of honor or leadership very carefully. There's a reason that James, yet again, we find ourselves going to James, but James says that those who teach and lead incur a stricter judgment. They're under a a greater magnification of the microscope. This is the reason that we maintain there is not the pastor of Canton Bible Church. There are pastors and elders, but there is no senior pastor, no head pastor, not the pastor. David Thompson is a pastor. Grady Cook is a pastor. They serve and shepherd the people of God on behalf of the great shepherd. Titles are dangerous things, so treat them as such. If you or a leader of this church ever becomes concerned about a title, or if you are focused on what people call you or being honored, then you are acting just like the wicked and evil religious leaders of Jesus' day. As one commentator notes, such thinking and living comes from the evil one. It is the way of hypocrisy. And as we are reminded by the words of verses 11 and 12, Jesus rejected this mindset himself. One of the reasons... This is so dangerous is that it steals glory from God. 
It's yet another way of turning the attention to myself and away from God. When we serve others or teach or sing, the reality is that God has used a mere instrument or a servant. And at most, we are just a tool in the hand of the one great shepherd and leader. Well, that brings us to our final instruction on how to love our neighbor in verses 11 through 12. We see that we love our neighbor when we seek servanthood. We seek to be servants. We don't like the term, but it's actually the term slave. Seek to be the slave of one another. Jesus returns to a message he has given several times before. He's had to give it to his disciples more than once. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And you know, this was not an abstract concept for Jesus. He, more than anyone, understood what this meant and gave us an example to follow. This is the attitude that we are exhorted to have, and Paul reiterates that in Philippians 2. Turn there, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. read a little bit longer section, but watch the servanthood of Christ as we are exhorted to follow the example he has set before us. Beginning verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, a thing to be held on to at all costs, no matter the circumstances. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. A bond slave is the word there. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, humiliating agonizing, cruel death on the cross. For this reason also, because he has humbled himself, God highly exalted him. That is the superlative. It doesn't get higher. He has exalted him to the highest and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I really can't add much to that. If you think you shouldn't be serving others, if you struggle to serve others, look to the example of Christ. Remind yourself that he is God of very God. We saw that at the end of chapter 22, where David, or Jesus, quoting the Messianic Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Remember, God doesn't share his glory with another. That means the Lord, the Christ, is God. God became man. Think about that for a minute. And I have trouble serving somebody? I have trouble being inconvenienced. 
God of very God became man, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Really what this whole passage, not just Philippians, going back to Matthew 23, what it does is it reminds us to look to Christ. As we said when we first looked at the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment is intimately connected to that first. If you want to love your neighbor, love God. If you want to love God, you'll show it by loving your neighbor. There's probably some here this morning who are burdened with trying to please God. You've been trying to work really hard at pleasing God. You've been trying to do everything you can do, and you're still not at peace with God. I have some good news for you this morning. You can stop doing that because you can't do that. You can never do enough to please God. If that's you this morning, if you are still not at peace with God, if you are burdened by your sin, wanting to earn God's favor, instead of trying and trying and trying and exhausting yourself and wearing yourself out, Come to him. Confess your neediness, your sin, your need for a savior. And I have the best news of all. He will not turn you away. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's another group in here this morning. Those who do love God, who claim to be his disciples. Maybe you've temporarily lost sight of this in trying to please God through your own works. You couldn't please him for your salvation. You can't do enough good things to earn more favor with him. No, what does he delight? What does he desire in? What does he want from you? Again, it's found in the Old Testament, but Jesus reiterates it at least three different times from Hosea 6.6. For I delight in loyal love rather than sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, rather than all your perfunctory acts of worship, all of your attempts at trying to please me. Just love me. Seek to know me. If you seek to know me, you'll love me more. If you love me more, you're going to want to know me more. It's a great circle. We need to remind ourselves, remind each other, encourage one another of God's great love. And then exhort one another, encourage one another as we respond together to that love and obedience and in serving our neighbor. As we do that, our love for ourselves will grow dimmer and dimmer as it should. Our love for others and our love for our Savior will grow ever more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this great reminder. Father, help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Father, even more importantly, help us with that greatest of all commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, help us to 
think upon you more. Don't be distracted by the busyness of life, the, the many different things that occupy our attention, that distract us, that concern us, that create worry and anxiety. Help us to pause and cast all of our burdens upon you, knowing that you care for us, and to think, to remind ourselves, to give thanks for your great love. Father, let us be an encouragement to one another. Let that be one of the ways we love one another. We love our neighbor by reminding one another of God's great love and mercy and goodness and kindness in our lives. And Father, would we preach this message of peace and rest to a weary world, many of whom who do feel the conviction of sin and try anything and everything to earn your favor, but are still exhausted and worn out and know they sit not under your favor, but under your wrath. Would we be faithful ambassadors to deliver this message of rest? In your name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.